Our first speaker today is artist Fred Woody, and he spent nearly four decades teaching art in public schools, the University of Montana and the University of Texas. Fred earned a BS and BFA from Northwestern Missouri State University and an MFA from the University of Montana. He was recognized twice as an educator of the year by the Texas Art Education Association and his work has been featured in numerous exhibitions throughout Texas and Montana. For more than seven years, Fred has been working on a historical true life novel about little known prospector Adam Horn Miller. Please welcome Fred Woody. Thank you. So, good morning. My voice is better in the mornings. My wife has told me to, to be quiet during the last two days, which I was in the session yesterday and I wasn't quiet. But uh, I'm not a historian, but I love a good story. And so let's take a look at who is this guy, Horn Miller. I gotta see if I can figure out this device there. Prospector, trapper, fur trader, a riverboat fight champion on the Missouri River. <laughs> Oh yeah, he's a guide for the second superintendent of Yellowstone National Park and showed him all around, especially the, the north and northeast sections of the park. He was a scout for General Howard during the Masters <coughs> movement. He uh, started out headed toward Big Hole but got there late and he was very angry about what the military had done in attacking those peoples, women and children, and he had nothing nice to say about military leaders after that. But when the Nispers were coming through the park, he ended up joining them with the scouts with George Houston and others that were up at the mining area. He was a discoverer of ores up at the Cook City area, the New World Mining District. He was a storyteller. He was an all-around mountain man, and perhaps <laughs> He might have been the toughest citizen in downtown. So we got to start with a name, Horn. I think the best explanation has to do with the river boats going up the Missouri, and they would often race to see who could get to their destination. Who's going to get to St. Joe first? Who's going to get to Nebraska City first? or when they come all the way up to Fort Union, who's gonna get there first? And the winner would then proudly display on the front of the pilot house on the steamboat a big array of horns and antlers, declared themselves champions, like a laurel. Well, Miller, when he was a teen in St. Louis, hung out on the wharf and often getting some work more often getting into fights. And after he whipped the meanest, toughest bully on the wharf, the next day, the other boys all brought him horns and antlers, <laughs> declaring him the champion. And the name stuck from then on, and he quit using the name Adam, and he was just Horn Miller. <laughs> I'm gonna stop, take a water, and let you read. If you can, I hope you can. See from the back. Come on, lock up. So I'll sit down now. That's a summary. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I've got to thank Lee for turning me on to Carolyn Lockhart because it turned out to be another fun pathway and lots of new discoveries. My home, this has been my retirement project. Uh, after I retired in 2011 from the University of Texas, I continued doing my studio every day, you know, doing drawing and painting and exhibiting and stuff. I got into the third year and I said, this is what I've been doing for more than 40 years. I want to do something different. I'd always had in my head about trying to find out more about Hornbiller. So I started doing it. And it's been like a prospecting tour for me. And when I find a new piece of information, it's like a gold nugget. I get excited. Why Hornbiller? Yeah. Oh, well, let's do that at Q&A. <laughs> so Miller's family immigrated from Bavaria the fall of 1840. He was three years old. His father died when he was 12. <clears throat> Cholera epidemic in St. Louis. And he had two older brothers, John and George, and he would often be at odds with them because the older brothers were now the men of the household and telling them what to do. And he really got angry a lot, and he stayed away and hid out the river and down at the wharf, getting in fights and so on. <clears throat> In 1855, he wasn't quite 18 years old, and he got his first job on a riverboat on the Missouri River, the Arabia. If anybody's ever been in Kansas City at the museum, well, that was the 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 uh, that it was the following year that the Arabia sank, and it had been sold, so it was a different owner, a different captain. But he worked on that one. His job was was he had two buckets of paint, one black and one white. And part of what he had to do every day, every morning was to go out and touch up the paint because the captain wanted it to look perfect. He was on, on the Missouri River for about four boat seasons and he was elevated, worked his way up to being a rooster. A rooster was a colloquial term for a rouster, <coughs> all kinds of jobs. Everybody working had to help load cordwood and they had to stop many times a day. Those, those riverboats burned lots of wood. <clears throat> One of the river traditions, the captain would call for a fight. Anybody wants to prove that they are the toughest guy on the boat could fight for it. Horn Miller was the champion of the riverboat Twilight for three consecutive years. Nobody could beat him. One of my favorite stories about him, and then this would be a pointer here someplace, but up here at Fort Union, so that was the main runs, up here at Fort Union, and they would bring trade goods and then trade them for furs and pelts to take back down uh, to be sold. And it was the, the ship owner, Captain John, <coughs> so pardon me, Captain John Shaw, uh, so the boat owner and captain was the one that made all the money off of that for the most part. But up here at Fort Union on the 4th of July, big celebration, Independence Day. The day starts with firing the cannon, shooting off rifles, and so on. But as the day goes on, one big fellow wanted to challenge Horn Miller for the right of the red sash. Because when you were the boat champion, you got a red cloth belt to wear, the championship belt, just a red piece of cloth. 
So this fellow wanted to challenge Horn. Horn won. Later that night, this fellow was a bit drunk and he tried to assassinate Horn Miller. He shot him, but he only got his ear. He took a piece off of his ear. Miller charged the guy, pummeled him to within an inch of his death, broke his hand doing it, had to be pulled off by, his, by the other guys. But that was the kind of fellow Horn Miller had a very fiery temper. He didn't want to cross it. He decided to not go back down on the twilight that trip, but to stay. And he got hired as a voyager to help pull the boats, carry the loads, the pelts, the bundles from Fort Union down to Fort Sarpy, where he spent that summer polishing his skills as a trapper and learning about fur trading. And then he caught the last boat going back down that fall on the Omaha, and he got off here at um, Nebraska City. And he spent then the winter of 1859 picking up any work that he could. And he got a job as a bullwhacker for a, and as an armed guard for a survey party that was going to survey a possible railroad for the Atchison Santa Fe rail line. And so this dotted line represents, it came clear down into the Indian Territory and then back up. He got $150 for doing that. And that gave him enough then to buy a horse or a mule. And at May, he joined a wagon train headed to California. And he, he had enough whereabouts that he was able to get free passage and food with the wagon train because he served as a hunter and then also herded the livestock and helped with that as well. His Missouri friend, since they were teens, a guy named John H. Pike Moore, got a job herding sheep for Dave Olson from Nebraska to Shasta, California. So the two guys agreed that they would rendezvous in Shasta. And they were there for about 18 months trying to prospect, getting odd jobs the best they could. But by the time they got there, all of the placer gold had all been panned out. They were 10 years too late for the California gold rush. And for a long time, that's an underlying theme for these two traveling buddies, that they always got to the big strikes too late. In 1861, in the winter, horrific flooding. We thought it was bad here in June, but California was underwater. I mean, their state budget was collapsed for several years, trying to get back out of that. And so Miller and Moore crossed over the Sierra Nevadas looking for work at the Comstock load. And there they learned things like the square set timbering and about processing silver with mercury. But Pike always wanted to go to the Pike's Peak Gold Rush. So they headed to California, to Colorado, and also the same thing as it was in California. They got there too late, and all the placer goals all panned out in Colorado as well. Pike still was determined to, to, to try to uh, prospect, and uh, 
sorry, I'm trying to fight through my voice here. Uh, Miller got a job at the first foundry in Denver City, and it was owned by uh, the brother of future National Park Superintendent Langford. Augustine Langford. So when they get the news hit Colorado territory about the, the strikes at Gold Creek and then at Bannock, a lot of the Colorado miners headed off toward what was then the Idaho Territory. Horn and Pike made their way up to Fort Laramie and were hoping to join a wagon train heading to Idaho. They arrived in Bannock in August of 1863. The town was almost a ghost town by then. They're always late showing up. But that winter, they did rendezvous with their acquaintance, John X. Beadler. Beadler owned a saloon previously in Atchison, Kansas, called the People's Saloon. And so they rendezvoused and met their, their acquaintance there, and they met all, some, a lot of the other miners and prospectors that had been there a year before them, and so on. So these are some significant names that, in terms of interactions for Miller. And there's a photo of Horn and Pike. Horn's the slim, tough-looking guy in the hat on standing. And Pike is a guy that he preferred to stay closer to the mining towns and the saloons. And he spent a lot of his days later in Montana as a wolfer and going out and using strychnine you know, to kill wolves and then skin and trap them. But they, they did mine the prospect a bit together, but mostly separately. But they did have some, some areas that they prospected up in the Prickly, Prickly Pear region. In February of 1864, Miller was one of about 75 men that joined James Stewart for the second Stewart's expedition. I don't know if you can see, you can see the red line. That's all you really need to look at. Be, I don't know in the back, let me know, but uh, you can kind of see where it went. So they were following the Yellowstone up to the mouth of the Bighorn, then back down. When they got down here in the canyon, Stewart decided that they're not finding anything. So he and some of the men turned around and headed back to Bozeman. And Miller was chosen to be the leader of the group after that. And they continued on and they prospected the Gray Bull and a little bit on the Stinking and uh, some of the other rivers and streams. And the group split up again and part of the group went on to the Green River. And Miller's group came back up around the east side of Yellowstone Lake, went up a creek that Miller named Pelican Creek. And there's another story on that one, but we'll go on. And they followed down the Yellowstone and back to Immigrant Gulch here. And up here is now uh, present day Livingston to give you a little orientation. Miller was out by himself prospecting. It was late in the year and uh, Hunting had not been good for anyone in the area, but he had good luck that day and he killed an elk. And that night he had big roast on his spit over the campfire. And he heard from the darkness, Hello, camp! <laughs> Miller invited the stranger in, sit by the fire, share the coffee, share the roast, share the biscuits 
Miller was famous for his biscuits. Johnson or Johnston, as Norman Nelson told me, corrected me, but he said that the biscuits are the best he'd ever eaten. They talked into the night, traded stories, and Miller got up the next morning, and he was an early riser. He'd always be up before dawn. Johnston was gone. All of the meat, cooked and uncooked, was gone, and so were the last of the biscuits. <laughs> uh, his new friend, Bart Henderson, had been prospecting with Jeff Standifer up at Gold Creek in 1866, and Standifer wanted to start an expedition prospecting, but Standifer just wanted to go for a fight. He was going to look for Indians to kill. And his main thing was to make sure everybody had you know, a certain amount of pounds of ammunition for that excursion. But there were about 172 men, very large group. And uh, they started the same route as what James Seward had done. And the, whoops, back one, trying to hit the pointer. Same way, back up Yellowstone to the mouth, and then back down again. But we got down here then, part of the men, Stanford convinced them to keep going south. He wanted to go to Mexico and get involved in revolution there and try to get some other guys to go with him. And Bart Henderson was one of the ones that made it down into Utah. Henderson got wounded and ended up recuperating as a Mormon family in Utah, which is yet another story. Well, so they split up, but there was about uh, 70 that stayed and remained together to keep prospecting in the, in the Bighorns. And that group was led by uh, Colonel Rice, and then he and some men were killed in an attack with Indians. And so part of the group headed to Fort Laramie for the winter, and the rest headed first to Fort Kearney on the Bozeman Trail, and then Miller and 10 men went on up to Fort C.F. Smith, and Miller led them back through Sioux Country and across the Crow Reservation back over to Bozeman. But Miller and Frederick Bottler led the, the search party for Crandall and Doherty when they didn't come back from their prospecting expedition. And eventually the bodies were found, then mutilated and beheaded, and they were buried in very shallow graves um, on what is now Crandall Creek in, down in Wyoming in the Sunlight Basin. Miller was pretty certain that these guys were out, stayed out too long because they'd found something. So he wanted to organize a prospecting group to go back into that area and search for gold. So Ed Moore and I are both today really trying to focus on the summer of 1870 you know, a little less than two years before the National Park was formed. And so Miller got James Gorley, Bart Henderson, and Dad Hibbard to join him. Uh, I saw Lee, and we'll talk. Henderson <laughs> uh, had been a lieutenant in the expedition with Standifer, and he kept a daily journal for that expedition. So he did the same for this 1870 prospecting expedition. 
at the beginning, his journal kind of waxed poetic. And here on the second day out, describing the Paradise Valley. If you can just focus on the red that I bolded, gives you an idea, so you're going to have to read all the excerpts I'll be showing. And the map, I know it's way too much detail to see back there. Here's what is now Livingston. Here's the site of Fort Parker, which is a still a historical site. They started from there. It took them two days to get to Immigrant Creek. And then the expedition stalled because James Gorey lost a horse. Went back looking for it. He didn't find it. Came back to camp. Bart Henderson went with him. They went back out again and spent another day looking. The weather turned bad. Rain, sleet, hail. They ended up coming back without the horse and used whiskey to fight off the weather a bit. Hence the got on a spree. Bart liked to get on a spree. He hated to miss Independence Day. He'd always make sure he'd get back to Bozeman for the party. They worked their way. They were six days delayed then, still between the weather and looking for the horse. Miller's getting real impatient. He's wanting to get back up where he thinks there might be gold where Crandall and Doherty had lost their lives. So they finally proceeded on from immigrant, still prospecting some of the creeks, and made it to Bear Creek. This is where Uncle Joe Brown in 1866 with three other guys pulled out almost $8,000 in gold dust out of the creek. And so they were going to check that out. There were already two prospectors there working it. So they continued themselves on up Bear Creek, and then across, and they worked their way across here, pretty much checking the headwaters, Crevice Creek and Elroy and all these rivers across. So they've been out now two weeks, not finding anything. Miller's impatient, keep moving, and there's starting to be some friction between him and Ed Hibbard. So Henderson splits them up, and they start working in pairs instead of the four of them together. June 21st, so they're now almost three weeks out, and they come to this area that they, they called Buffalo Platte. Today, it's called Buffalo Plateau. Miller was always up early. One of his, one of his complaints about Hibbert was, you know, the last ones to get out of bed. Miller went out early in the morning to go shoot a bison. He only wounded this bull, and the dog that was with him started chasing the, this wounded buffalo and ran right into camp, right through the tent where the other three guys were sleeping. <laughs> so now they kept having more and more issues with buffalo charges, mosquitoes, flies, ants, journals full of things about why this is such a miserable trip. Weather, deep snow, all of those things. When they camped at the forks of Slough Creek, <coughs> they found an area where it looked like someone had been digging in the middle fork. <coughs> and Miller guessed it was probably, uh, might have been Doherty and Crandall the year before. July 1st though, they crossed over Wolverine Pass and found Lake Abundance. So this is like five miles north of Cook City. 
up over Crown View. It's up here. Whoops, I keep hitting the wrong button, sorry. Yep, here we go. So this is satellite photo, Lake Abundance. Have it here on the map. This big white expanse. And so they found signs of gold everywhere there. So there's the region. And Cook City would be right off the bottom of that map image. July 3rd, found gold, doing great. July 4th was Ed Hibbert's 33rd birthday. They thought that's probably a good sign. We're going to keep finding good stuff. Horn Miller would turn 33 a little bit later in the month. By the 6th, crummy weather, but Miller wanted to keep prospecting. He persuaded James Gorley to go with him, and they went on foot, the two men and the dog. They used their locker boxes as backpacks, tied on with ropes, and they headed up and followed this creek up to this area. Meanwhile, back at the camp, the guys are constantly being plagued by bears getting chased up a tree, all sorts of things. By the end of July, these four men would have 27 bear skins. Killed six bears today. Got chased by a she-bear. What you read in the white box. Anderson didn't make any note in his journal about what these guys had found. But the two of them for the rest of their days, would tell the story about Grasshopper Glacier, how they knocked chunks of the ice off with the insects frozen in them, put it by their campfire, thaw out the ice, and gleefully watch the grasshoppers pop away. Hey, they got to entertain themselves. Well, for most of the next week or so, they were prospecting more in the area around and what is now Cook City, and the headwaters of Clark's Ford, and Index and Pilot Peak. This drawing is from the survey expedition, Haynes, of 1878. Note the uh, colorful name that Henderson gave to this mountain formation. But in the transcription by Granville Stewart, he just put T blank blank blank. <laughs> they continue to work in the area, they went down behind Intex, up one stream, down another, and finally came out onto the east fork of the Yellowstone River, what we now call the Lamar River. They came to this formation, they gave it its name, they also christened Soda Butte Creek. So that's the birth date of that naming, that christening, was the 23rd of July. Photos from the following year by Jackson. So they continue moving, find the bread, here we go. So here's Soda Butte. They went down the, that east fork of the Yellowstone through the what's the Lamar Valley. They camped here at close to Tower Junction. They went up Specimen Ridge the next day and down into the east fork again. Kept trying and working their way upstreams to find a way over the divide, because they wanted to get to this, the headwaters of the middle fork of the Stinking River, the Shoshone. They made it on uh, the 30th of July, 1870. 
I've been infringing on my friend Edward's time here. So they lost all their horses. And that meant that they had this treasure trove. Remember, 27 bearskins, a huge bundle of buffalo robes, elk hives, and they were going to have to leave it all behind. <clears throat> so they spent the night sharpening their knives and slicing everything into shreds. They did not want to leave anything that their attackers could use. And any, any meat they had, they poisoned. These guys, most of them, they carried strychnine. So they wanted to eliminate everything. They destroyed their saddles, all their equipment, make everything worthless, except for Ed Gorley. Gorley had a nice saddle. He just couldn't do it. But they decided they were going to have to walk. They guessed it was about 200 miles back to Fort Parker. You can see what they, their inventory there of their food supplies. And so they started out the next day. Gorley carried his saddle until noon of the second day. <laughs> he stashed it under and put some pine browses up over it. He was going to come back and get it in the fall, which he did. They started dropping stuff as they went because it was just too heavy. The going was too hard. It was too steep. They had ropes. They had a mountaineer. They would use their knives to dig footholds into the side of a cliff to climb down with a rope. They often had to walk in this water, the cold water of the streams because of steep sloping beside them. It was rough going. But here's where the bottom right is where they had camped them where they were attacked and lost their horses. So they started working their way back down to the East Fork. When they got down to Cache Creek, which is called Cache Creek because they dug a hole for caching more of their stuff in case they had to get come back to it in an emergency. So they continued on along the way. The story that Horn would say is just too much for him to stand with Hibbert anymore when Hibbert kicked the dog. <laughs> and <clears throat> Miller verbally got a laugh after him. Not, don't do that. Hibbard pulled his knife, Miller pulled his pistol, and Anderson had to cock his rifle and step in between the two. They were ready to kill each other. On the process, one night they were attacked by wolves. Another night, their camp was invaded by the Indians. They'd been trying to follow them, figure out where they'd gone. So they had to crawl up into the, into the wild and hide. But Miller noticed that one of the invaders was wearing a hat that he was absolutely sure was Crandall's hat. And he wanted to fight him. And Henderson had to intercede again and say, no, there's too many of them. Can't do that, just be still. They proceeded up Slough Creek and started working their way toward the headwaters of the boulder and back that way. And Miller kept pushing and saying, 10 miles a day is going to take us way too long to get back. We've got to keep going more. And so they started doing 12 and 15 miles a day. Deep snow, miserable weather, sometimes no food. Sometimes they would catch fish. You get to August 12th, 
They just they knew their territory. They recognized the terrain. They knew they were in distance of Fort Parker if they really pushed it. So they walked all day and deep into the night and went 25 miles on that last day and got to Fort Parker exhausted. They were welcomed there by Army Captain E.M. Camp and they were fed and they rested and after a few days of rest Henderson, Hibbard, and Gorley went to Bozeman. Someone had found Gorley's horse so he retrieved it in Bozeman. They all, they all had collected enough little bit of gold that they had some money. Gorley bought seven new Springfield rifles. Henderson knew that if they were going to really make any money out of the, this prospect that they had found, they would have to have a road to get there, a wagon road. So he went off up the Yellowstone to go back through that narrow pinch in a canyon at the south end of Paradise Valley that is now called Yankee Jim, looking for some place where they could maybe open up enough space to get a wagon through, which they did successfully. The centennial of the first wagon going through through that canyon is next Friday. It was October 7th, 1872, and they finally got one through. Prior to that, wagons would have to be disassembled, taken on a mule in parts to get through, and then reassembled to go on the rest of the way up to Mammoth Gardner and so on. Camp had been a military um, agent for the Crow Reservation for just 15, 16 months, and he would be replaced by Fellows D. Peace on September 9th. Peace would eventually be a mining partner of Horn Miller's. Miller, meanwhile, started recruiting guys to immediately go back. And he got five more guys that agreed to go with him. And just a couple of weeks later, eight men with horses and supplies and new Springfield rifles went back the exit path the way they'd come. They went back up the Boulder River with them. The only one that wasn't with them, so there were eight, not nine men, was Henderson was down searching for that route through. The Horn Miller, toughest man, maybe stubborn for damn sure. <laughs> he staked out his first big pain claim that September. He dug a 30 foot at it into the mountain, mostly by himself. Of all the miners, prospectors, investors, everybody that ever had anything to do in the New World District, Miller's the only one that stuck it out. That's what makes him unique. Bart Henderson went to the Dakotas. He ended up running a salt operation there. Miller stuck it out for 47 years. He held on to his original claim in each of those, the shoe fly, the Josephine, the stump, and just four months before his death, he started a new placer claim and moved tons of rock as a 79-year-old. So maybe, maybe he was the toughest man. Thank you for letting me tell you about my story.